0: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I always love the awkward silence so someone reciprocates. Good morning and welcome everyone to Fellowship Greenville. We're so excited that you're here this morning. My name is Matt Densky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville and I wanna welcome you to our church as we worship God together and learn from his word and the presence of his spirit together this morning on one, if you're online, if you're watching this later, hello everyone and welcome to fellowship this morning. If it's your first time here, or first time in a while or whatever, uh, we're so glad you've chosen to worship with us. We want you to know you are so welcomed here and so loved here. And typically on Sunday mornings, we go through books of the Bible at a time. That's how we navigate uh, together through the scriptures. And right now, over the past year or so, we have been in the Gospel of John. And this morning we're gonna to continue to study the Gospel of John and wrap up chapter 20, leaving us with only one chapter left. So we are, we are rapidly approaching the end of our study of John's Gospel. A few weeks ago was Easter, and Easter is like the pinnacle of our faith. Paul says in Corinthians, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is in vain. And so truly the resurrection is the apex, is, is the pinnacle of, of our faith. It, it puts a stamp on everything, it's the definitive marker that says to us, Jesus is God in the flesh who came to the earth and was brutally murdered at the hands of Rome on an execution device called a cross for our sins and was put in the, in the tomb and three days later through the power of God was risen from the dead, giving all of his followers hope and victory in this life and in the next forever and ever. And so we celebrated that. We came together and celebrated that. For many of us, Easter is is such a a joyous occasion and it is the mark of, of celebrating our faith. But for many others, who, who don't believe in the resurrection, who don't believe in Jesus, Easter is, you know, a holiday. It's a time to come together, to hide eggs, to eat chocolate, uh, which I'm guilty of a lot of that, uh, to bake a ham. I learned recently Easter's like the ham holiday. I didn't know that, but you bake a ham on Easter and uh, and to spend time together. And, and while they're meeting together, they're, they're very aware that there is this group of probably pretty well-meaning people, albeit a little naive, who dress up in pastels and come together in buildings and make this audacious claim that they believe in a God who came to this earth and died and came back from the dead. So they're on the other end of the spectrum, right? And granted, the resurrection is, is a little bit of a hard thing to believe in. Maybe you grew up with it, maybe it was common language in your home, maybe you were in church forever, you were in all the Sunday school classes, and so it never seemed, that radical to you, but if, if you're approaching it for the first time, the resurrection, that God died and came back, is, is a hard claim to believe in. And this morning, we're going to look at someone who's having a very difficult time wrapping their mind around this resurrection. And so you have those who celebrate it and those who don't, but I, I think there's probably a third category, there's a third camp of people, somewhere in the middle of this spectrum... Who would say, you know, I lean towards Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I have faith in Jesus, but man, if I'm honest, I'm wrestling with some things in this life. I have questions, and I have doubts. And I think most of us, if not all of us, today, this morning are in this, this middle ground, this third camp. If not this morning, then you probably have been at some point in your life. And if you haven't yet, you probably will be. The, the truth is, what I'm proposing to you, that if we're brutally honest with each other, is that there are times in our lives when we have doubts, when we wrestle with things. It's not destroying our faith. Like we would still say, no, I believe in Jesus, but dude, I, I'm wrestling with things. But, but honestly, we don't voice those, do we? Because somewhere along the line in the, in the world of church culture, we learned that if you believe in Jesus, you're not supposed to have doubts. And so we don't know how to express these doubts. And so we bottle them up. We feel guilty or ashamed, or we feel like we have a less than quality faith compared to others who apparently have never doubted anything in their life. And so we don't talk about our doubts. But if we're really honest, we have them. Everybody has doubts at times in their faith. C.S. Lewis uh, put it like this, longtime atheist intellectual giant converted to Christianity put it like this, believe in God and you'll have to face hours when it seems obvious to you that this material world is the only reality. Disbelieve in him and you must face hours when this material world seems to shout at you that this is not all. If you believe in God, there will be moments in your life where you will, you will stare smack dab in the face of your faith and think to yourself, I, it just does not feel like there's more. My faith feels stagnant. I've got questions I can't answer. Jesus feels distant. When I pray, nothing happens. Does God care? Does he listen? Does he love me? I can't answer these questions. For whatever reason, I'm in a season of doubt. And you look around and you're like, I don't know if there is more than this. But even those who don't believe in in God at times in their lives will look around and observe something or experience something and think there has to be more than just this life. There's got to be something beyond this. and So they have doubts as well. Doubt is not exclusive to the Christian faith. Doubt is something everybody experiences no matter where you're at in life. And so for the point of this morning, let me give us a reference point. When I talk about doubt this morning, when I say the word doubt, this is what I mean. Doubt is what happens when an experience enters your story that your current worldview cannot reconcile. Doubt is what happens when an experience or an event enters your story that your current worldview cannot reconcile. In other words, you've had this Processing mode in your life and it's worked so far and everything has kind of run through the filter of this worldview that you have, but then all of a sudden you experience something and your current worldview doesn't know what to do with it. It's like, no, 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 there's no box for this. I I don't know how to make sense of that. And so it starts to shake some things and it rattles you. People who believe in Jesus might experience doubt from time to time. In fact, I would say oftentimes, and I would propose this morning that doubt and faith, do not have to be exclusive of one another, but they can actually be in harmony with one another. But people who believe in Jesus have doubts. And guess what? People who don't believe in Jesus have doubts. Their worldview at times is disrupted and shaken and rattled. And they don't know how to process. Like, wait, I just experienced something that's now making me think maybe there is more. Maybe I was wrong. I mean, this is the very disruptive nature of Jesus as we see him operate in the Gospels. He comes and he disrupts toxic religion. He comes and he disrupts culture and society and the categories of value. And he gives dignity and worth to those who are marginalized and oppressed. And he elevates the status of people that culture said should not be elevated. And he taught in ways that were provocative and caused people to think and left them wondering, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this truly what God desires? Jesus provoked a healthy way of thinking that challenged the worldview of those around him. He created doubt. In Judaism, he created doubt among the Pharisees. Look at Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus in John three is, "I'm missing something. man, no one can do what you do unless he's from God." So G- Nicodemus is doubting his current understanding of God and the scriptures. Jesus creates doubt. Among sinners, there is more to this life. God does love me. He, he does care about me. Was I wrong this whole time? Jesus disrupts the worldviews and creates doubt in ways that begin to ask questions, begin to seek answers and begin to seek truth. And if you're in here this morning and you're a doubter, if you're in here this morning and you have questions, if you're in here this morning, or if you're watching at home or online and you would categorize yourself as a skeptic I want you to know that you are so welcomed here by us and I believe by Jesus. I think Jesus receives our doubts. I think he can handle our doubts. I don't know if if you've noticed, it's interesting to me in in places where faith is common, doubts aren't really talked about as if no one has them. And there's some stereotype, some taboo idea that we cannot have doubts because that means we don't believe. And and hopefully by the end of this morning, we discover that's not true but I want you to know you're in good company, both in this room and in faith. Look at in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah. God is making a covenant with Abraham. What does he promise Abraham? Children. How old is Abraham? Really old. <laughs> His wife is also barren. Her womb is not able to produce children and, and God is making a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. I will give you children. What do they do? They doubt. They laugh, how can this be? We're so old, we can't have kids. How is this true? They doubt it. The soldier Gideon, God wants to use him in amazing ways for the nation of Israel. Gideon's unsure about this. What does he do? He asks God for a sign. I, I'm just not clear, I need a sign. Would you bless me with a sign? God amazingly answers his prayer request. Be nice if he would answer those for us too, right? I know you've asked for signs before. Come on now, people. God answers Gideon with a sign. Gideon has this sign performed in front of him. What's he do? Ah, I need another. I need a second. (laughs) I need a sign to confirm the sign. And God gives him a second. What does he do? I just need a third. One more and I'm sure. He doubts. He doubts that what he's experiencing is actually God at work. And so he has questions. Even Jesus' very own cousin, John the Baptist, Upon seeing Jesus, he declares out loud, behold, the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Crystal clear idea of who Jesus is. He grew up with him. He's his cousin. He understands that he is Messiah. And then John is later arrested and he's facing his execution. And in these moments of desperation and fear, what does he do? He doubts. He begins to wonder if Jesus really is the one the Messiah. If you're in the in, in here this morning and you doubt, you are in such good company. I think the Bible is way more comfortable with doubts than God's people are. It seems that there are heroes in our faith who doubted at times, and God was still able to use them and love them and have mercy on them. We doubt. We doubt. So this morning, I want to look at someone in the scriptures who's kind of known for his doubts, right? His name is Thomas. We're going to look in John chapter 20 this morning. We're going to look at a guy named Thomas who really had a hard time believing in the resurrection. And he's known for this, right? His name is uh, Doubting Thomas. He's the only disciple to get kind of a verb with his name. This is the doubting one. This is Thomas, the doubter. So let's look, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, or your your Bibles might say Didymus, which let's be honest, Thomas was definitely the, the way to go between the two options, right? Although doubting Didymus does have a nice ring, it's got that nice alliteration to it, I kinda like that. But Thomas is probably the way to go called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so that's referring to the passage right before this. Jesus has appeared post-resurrection. He's come back from the dead. He's appeared to Mary at the tomb. He's appeared to the other disciples, the 10. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, is, is out of the picture, he's gone. So there's 11 left and Jesus appeared to the 10. Who's missing? Thomas. Thomas has not seen Jesus alive yet. He's the only one of the disciples to not experience the risen Lord. He was not with them, the other disciples, when Jesus came, when he revealed his risen body to them. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We've seen him, he's back. I know it's hard to believe, but he's come back from the dead. And Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of, of the nails and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I don't think he's speaking hyperbolically here, although it is extreme. I mean, if you could imagine saying something like, that, I will never believe in Jesus unless I go to heaven and I can poke his wounds, right? I mean, it's extreme, but I think he's being literal. This is where he, he's at right now. I will never believe again unless I'm, exa- unless I'm able to examine it myself and see it myself. What's he asking for? A firsthand experience with irrefutable evidence, which if we're honest, the stuff we ask for too. Jesus, I just wanna know, I just wanna experience you in a way that would never lead me to doubt again. He gets a bad rap for being a doubter, but if we're honest, he's the only one of the disciples who hasn't seen the risen Lord, I think we can give him some grace. I think we can understand maybe from his perspective, The other disciple, you saw someone that looked like him. You didn't see him. We saw him die. Your friends are coming to you telling, no, 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 no. We saw him alive. No, you didn't. And if it's true, I need to see it. I mean, it's not the most unfair request. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So somehow in in Jesus's post-resurrection body, he has these divine powers. He's able to to pass through rooms with locked doors and appear in places that he he once wasn't. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you, his greeting is peace. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, immediately responded, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of God for the people of God. So Thomas, who was he? Let's do a little case study of Thomas real quick. He he gets the bad rap because he he has some questions he's doubting and he's known for that. Although I think many of us would be in the same boat, if we're honest. Who was he? If we look throughout the gospels, Thomas was not riddled with doubt. He, he wasn't this person who just has this very fragile faith and always needs answers. He's in, in fact a very bold guy and he's got an affinity, affinity to be inquisitive. He, he, he wants data, he wants details. If we're speaking Enneagram language, hello my people, he's probably a five. Okay, some of you know what that means. He just wants the information so that he can come to his conclusions. If you look in John chapter 11, Jesus is doing ministry and there's a bounty out for his arrest. People want to capture him. And the disciples are deliberating, well, how do we do this? How how do we move forward now? I mean, they're afraid, they're questioning. It's Thomas who pipes up John chapter 11 and says, let's go with Jesus and die with him. Now that doesn't sound like the words of a cowering man who's doubting. Sounds like someone who's ready to follow this man. He had a question about Jesus' resurrection, but I don't think Thomas was a lifelong doubter. He just liked the details. He's got a bold faith. It's John chapter 14. Jesus is teaching and he's telling his disciples, I'm about to leave you, but don't worry. I will send my helper. I will send my spirit. And where I'm going, you know how to find me. You know the way. Nobody speaks up. Although I think probably every disciple had no clue what Jesus was talking about. But one disciple was courageous enough to speak up while all the others were silent, and it was Thomas. Thomas asks Jesus, Jesus, we don't know the way to you. What do you mean? And it was because of that question that prompted Jesus to respond in John chapter 14, verse six with one of the most beautiful and well-known statements of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It was Thomas's question, his courage, his boldness, his desire for details that prompted this discussion with Jesus. Thomas was a bold guy, and he just wanted the details. He's not a lifelong doubter. He's wrestling with the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that's fair. He's one of the original 12. He had been around everything, all the miracles since the beginning. He'd been with Jesus. So why is he doubting? Well, why do we doubt? What prompts us to doubt? Again, some experience has entered our story that has disrupted our worldview in a way that we just can't reconcile. We don't know what to do with this now. We didn't have a category for this. Well, I wanna give you six different categories real quick of I I think of why people doubt, all right? These are very general, but six categories why I think people doubt. Number one is pride. The idea that I don't need God. Uh, it seems beneath me, it, it's, it's childish. Uh, I've rationally and logically thought this through. I'm smarter than all the Christians I ever meet. I don't need this. I've never had a need of this. And so there, there's this sense of pride and independence. You know, I'm, I, I'm not in need of, of a religion of any kind and especially God. Number two would be insecurities. Is that God wouldn't want me not after what I've done, not after the sins I've committed. His grace could never apply to me. He couldn't forgive all that I've done. There's no way that God would want me after my lifestyle. And so, so we, we, we live in guilt and shame and we convince ourselves that God could not love us. And so we doubt, we doubt that it could even be true. Three would be pain. Some, some experience in our life, some personal pain, you've experienced that you weren't ready for and your worldview doesn't know how to reconcile. If God really loved me, if God were really fair, he wouldn't allow this to be happening to me. God, this isn't what I signed up for. I, I, I thought you would bless me. I didn't know that you would allow me to experience this pain or this loss or this, this trauma if God loved me and if he was fair, this would not be happening. And so personal pain creates doubts. Our worldview doesn't know what to do with those sometimes. Fourth would be conditions. That I believe in Jesus, I'll follow Jesus, but it's gotta look like this and be like this. And if I believe, my life should result like this and I should have these blessings and Jesus should operate this way. And when I pray, I'll be heard and my prayers will be answered and I'll see the immediate result and life will be like this. And then all of a sudden, when those things don't come true, we begin to get frustrated with God. Like, hey, where are you, man? This isn't what I signed up for. And it's because we've put conditions upon God and God doesn't fit into our box. And so we begin to have doubts. Fifth would be culture. We look around at the world. We're like, ah, it looks pretty good. Looks fun. I mean, they're not living with God and yet they seem to have a fine life. Like that looks nice. In fact, I'm drawn to some of that lifestyle. It wouldn't be called temptation if it weren't tempting. It's appealing. And so we look at it and we observe it. We're like, ah, they seem fine. And so we kind of dabble in some things. And before we know it, we are swept down the river of the current of culture and we've lost our anchor and we are fastly and quickly moving away from our faith in Jesus. Six would be the problem of evil. We look around at the world, we watch the news and we think to ourselves, how can God allow these things to happen? If he's good and loving and all powerful, this should not be the reality of the world. So the problem of evil is the splinter in our mind and we can't reconcile who God says he is and the reality of the world we live in and so we doubt. So out of these six, where do you find yourself most often? Is there one in there that you're like, oh, that is my reality. I've never really admitted it out loud, but that's me. Or is it all six at different times? Where was Thomas? I think Thomas was right in number four. He's classic conditional faith. And the reason is, Thomas and the other disciples had come to believe in Jesus as Messiah, but because of their understanding of Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, they began to think that Messiah would liberate them and free them from their physical oppressors. And so they were waiting on Jesus to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. They expected a military leader, a conquering king, to literally take the throne in Jerusalem and remove Rome, their oppressors. And Jesus did not come as conquering king, he came as suffering servant. And there was no category in Thomas's mind. There was no box to check for a God that would die at the hands of Rome, the very nation that he was supposed to be overthrowing. And then there was especially no category for that God coming back to life. So Thomas had these conditions upon what Messiah would be like. And when Jesus didn't live in them, he and the other disciples, as we see from various passages throughout the Gospels, had some serious doubts and disappointments. They put conditions upon Jesus. so. What do we do with our doubts? Can we learn from Thomas? I think yes. And so I wanna try to answer two questions today. What do we do with our doubts? How do we handle our doubts? And how does Jesus handle our doubts? What do we see in this passage going on? So how do we handle our doubts? Let's take a look at the passage again. The first thing I would say is we handle our doubts honestly. Honestly. Look at Thomas's declaration again. Thomas responds to his friends, the other disciples, in this very dramatic, very extreme pronunciation. This conditional pronunciation. Unless I see the scars, the wounds of the nails, unless I put my finger into them, I will never believe again. Unless I can put my hand in his side, I will never. I mean, Thomas is drawing a line here. It is not possible for me to ever return to the faith unless I'm able to actually put my hand in the wounds. Now that's a pretty extreme statement, granted, but it's also an honest statement. He's speaking out of his emotions and they're white hot at the moment. He's distraught, he's discouraged, he's disappointed, he's let down, he had put all of his eggs in the basket of Messiah, and now that Messiah is dead, his friends are coming to him and saying, no, 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 he's back, he's alive. And he's, I think Thomas wants to believe that, but he's, he's so nervous to get his hopes back up because he's already been let down that his mind instead goes to logic. I need to analyze it, I need the data points, I need to see it for myself, I need to examine it all. Otherwise, I'll never believe again. He's honest. In the church world and in church culture, we don't tend to be honest about our doubts. We like the idea that we don't have doubts. Somehow we've learned along the way you shouldn't have doubts. And so we pretend and we put a mask on and we act as if our faith is rock solid and we've never questioned anything. All the while we suppress our doubts and we silence our doubts. And you know what happens when you do that? It's typically they surface up later in life at some point more toxic than ever. The doubt has now become destructive. It's a poison in the mind because we never gave it a channel to be dealt with to begin with. Because we were told, no, 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 you can't say that. You can't voice that. Don't believe that. Don't say that. Don't think that. And so we silenced our doubts. And it, If our faith is a relationship with God, the foundation of every relationship is trust, and trust is built by honesty. When we have doubts or questions about things and our worldview cannot reconcile, those doubts should not silence our dialogue with God, but amplify our dialogue with God. Our prayer lives should go up when we're in seasons of doubting. The conversations with our friends should increase when we're in seasons of doubting. We should feel the freedom and grace and mercy of God to be able to ask the questions, not dismissing faith, but because of faith, desire to find truth for the doubt that we're wrestling with. But instead, what do we do? We dismiss them, we silence them. We've been trained not to ever voice them because of shame or guilt or judgment or whatever. And so we pull away from God and typically pull away from community as well. But if we're gonna deal with our doubts and deal with them in a healthy way, we have to deal with them honestly. And that comes first by admitting we have them and then by describing how we're feeling and then by asking the questions and seeking truth for those questions. It's 2021, uh, which means I've been in student ministry in the world of student ministry now for 16 years. I stepped into student ministry in 2005. And so for... You know, 16 years. My worldview, my uh, my profession has been the next generation has been adolescent culture, which has been really, really fun. And so I've seen the shifts happening from the time when millennials were present, and then all of a sudden Gen Z is present. And I've seen the value shift and how culture shifts. Adolescent culture evolves quicker than anything else on the planet. It is a global phenomenon. No one can keep up. And so it's been you know kind of a whirlwind to be in it for so long. In 2019, there was a survey done among about 15,000 people, and all of them uh, came from the context of Christian homes. Uh, They were raised in the faith, they knew the gospel, their families went to church, and so they all claimed Christ at one time. And this survey was done, and they discovered that among American uh, teenagers, as of 2019, 64% will walk away from their faith by the time they're 30 years old. To put that in perspective, that's three out of every five students will walk away from their faith by the time they're 30 years old. And you might be thinking, no, 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 wait, they didn't have the gospel. No, they did. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. They didn't have Christian parents. No, they did. The demographic interviewed and surveyed were students who grew up in Christian homes with the gospel, went to church, so on and so forth. By the time they're 30, three out of every five walk away from their faith this number's going up. And I don't say that to scare you, but it it should sober you in some ways. Like, oh, what's happening? And there's tons of reasons for this. And I mean, honestly, I would need like 10 more weeks to, to even get at it. But one of the reasons that adolescents are walking away from their faith in record numbers is because, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons, is because they know, they graduate knowing what they believe, but not why they believe it. There was never an outlet to build a bridge of application, to build a bridge of authenticity. They have all this information. They went to all the sermons, they went to all the Sunday school classes, they went to youth group, they went to all the trips. They were given all this information and sometimes it even provoked emotion, which was great and they had some experiences which were really good. But at the end of the day, they don't know why this stuff matters. They know the what, but not the why. And they're looking at their family and they're trying to discern why does this matter in our family? And they're looking at Monday through Saturday and they don't see anything or any way that Sunday has affected these days. They can't tell a difference in their parents' marriage. They can't tell a difference in their home or family. All of a sudden, church seems like it's broken down to a weekly ritual, which we go when we listen and that doesn't really change our lives. And so when they get into stages of independence, Their faith is so fragile that it pops because they were never allowed the channel to ask questions. And I've heard over the years from countless students that when they tried to ask hard questions at home, they were immediately silenced. No, don't ask that. We don't think that in this family. Don't say that out loud. That's not how we believe. And their faith was never grown because it was always controlled, and doubts were always dismissed. There was never struggle because they never had the freedom to ask hard questions. If we are gonna deal with our doubts in a healthy way, we have to learn to be honest about our doubts, which means as a community of God's people, we have to meet those doubts with grace and empathy and allow them. Again, God's word seems way more comfortable with doubting than God's people do. We have to learn to ask the hard questions. We have to learn to welcome those hard questions. We can, cannot be afraid of them. So how do we deal with our doubt? Honestly, second, I would say patiently. Again, let's look at Thomas here. He vocalizes to his friends, the disciples, unless I see the wounds, I won't believe. And then look at verse 26. John gives us a timestamp. Eight Days later. Do you know how frustrating Thomas would have been for those eight days? Just this obtuse dude in the corner of the room? I won't believe. I'm not gonna believe. Like, no, Thomas, we've seen him. Not me. Like eight days later, you know how frustrating his disciple, his friends would have been? Come on, man, just believe. Dude, I'm telling you, we saw no, no, not me. How frustrating is it? To follow a God, to worship a God who does not answer us instantly. Like, let's be honest. We want that, don't we? I'm struggling. I want the instant relief. I have a question. I want the instant answer. I have a prayer request. I want it instantly granted. And that's not how God works. Eight days later... His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them and although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus comes eight days later and I think this is intentional on Jesus's part because I think Jesus wants Thomas in the tension of waiting. It's like a, like a, a, a caterpillar in the chrysalis. There's gotta be this tension before it develops the strength to actually fly and if you open it too soon, it's not strong enough to do so. Thomas is in this tension of asking the questions. Everyone else has seen Jesus except me. You guys believe, and that's great. I can't believe. But Thomas, we've seen him, but I haven't. And unless I do, I won't believe. And and so he's in this tension of desiring to believe, but he can't. And Jesus has him there I think intentionally because waiting and silence are where faith actually develops. Silence is strengthening to our faith. It is the tension that builds our faith. It is the waiting that develops our dependency on God in our faith. If God answered everything instantly or did everything instantly, we would begin to treat him like a vending machine and not like God. We would get so used to punching the numbers and getting the immediate result that we wouldn't know how to depend on him. We wouldn't know what to do in the waiting. Jesus has Thomas in the waiting. Think back to Mark chapter six. Of my favorite stories in the Bible, Jesus has his disciples on one of the hardest and longest stretches of ministry they've ever done. He sent them out on their own. They come back, they're hungry, they're sleep deprived. Jesus invites them to rest. They cross the Sea of Galilee. Oh, but there's a crowd there. Change of plans. We're gonna teach the crowd. We're gonna feed the crowd. I need you guys to organize them, set them up in groups of 50s and 100s, pass out the food. Here's a miracle manifestation of bread and fish. Pass out the food, take up the food, get back in the boat, cross the Sea of Galilee. I mean, they're exhausted. And when they get in the sea of Galilee, when they get in the boat again, Mark gives us some timestamps and Jesus begins to pray around 6 p.m. And he doesn't walk on the water until about 3 a.m. or 6 a.m. And the disciples have been in a storm that entire time and Jesus is watching them from the shore. And so for a minimum of nine hours straight, Jesus has watched his men in the storm making painful headway. And this is the God-man who can speak to the wind and the waves. We know he could calm that whole state. He could have said, man, they've had a long day. They've had a long stretch of ministry. They need the rest. And instead, Jesus leaves them in the storm. Why? Because it is in the tension of waiting and the chaos of life. It is at the end of ourselves when we are utterly dependent on God that we learn that he can walk on water. And we learn that sometimes even we can walk on water. That's how faith develops. It's the tension. It's the waiting, and Thomas is waiting in the silence of what to do. I have uh, two sons, and every night we have a, a bedtime routine. My oldest son is five, and my middle child, my second son, is two and a half. And part of our bedtime routine is reading books every night. And one of the books they really love is this like search and find book. It's like a. It's kind of like Where's Waldo, but not that complex. So it'd be like a, you know, a picture of a barn and there's like animals and hay bales and tractors and buildings and there's all these shapes and different things you gotta find, right? And so I'll ask Trent, my five-year-old, all right, Trent, can you find three blue birds? And you know, he's looking around in the the midst of all this stuff and he's finding them. Like, good job, buddy. He's also done this page like a thousand times and so he pretty much knows where anything is, blindfolded. And then I'll turn to my two-and-a-half-year-old and I'll say, all right, Gray, can you find a star? Like somewhere in this picture, there's a star and you'll see Gray kind of observe this picture with all the chaos going on and you know your eyes just get so confused and about 1.7 seconds go by and Trent goes, I, I see it. I'm like, oh, that's, that's great, buddy, but let's let, let's let Gray try to find it. And then at about the three second mark, Trent goes, Gray, I, I know where it is. Like, that's, that's great, Trent, but let's let, it's his turn. And then at the five second mark, Trent's like, uh, Gray, uh, it's, it's maybe somewhere on this page. I'm like, hey, buddy, like, that's great, but let's let him, and Gray's like, you know, trying to find, and then at 10 seconds, Trent just can't handle it anymore. He's like, Gray, it's somewhere like right here, somewhere like here-ish, right like here, and Gray's like, oh, I see it, there it is. I'm like, yes, you found it, great, good job, and so I've had to start having these conversations with Trent, my oldest, and saying, look, buddy, you have a heart to help your brother and to help him succeed and to help him learn, and I love that about you, but if he doesn't learn the skill of looking at the chaos and being able to find it himself, then he's only ever going to know that you'll shortcut it for him. And I need you to help me by being silent so that he can learn how to do this too. But in our relationship with God, don't we want, we want him to be like, hey, hey, here it is, buddy. Here it is. And Jesus is like, no, but that doesn't grow your faith. It doesn't develop the skill of dependency and trust. And so Jesus has Thomas in the silence. The presence of silence is not the absence of Jesus. We tend to think it is, but it's not. Many times it's when we're drawn the closest to Jesus. So how do we handle our doubts? Honestly, patiently, and thirdly, in community. So look again at our passage. It's very interesting to me that in the prior passage, Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene, and he's appeared to the other 10 disciples. Judas, the betrayer, is is out of the picture. He's gone, and so there's 11 left, and Jesus has appeared to 10. The only one missing was Thomas in the passage right before this. And that's really interesting to me because right now, the disciples of Jesus are entirely afraid for their lives. They're on the run, they're in hiding. They fear the Jewish leaders. They fear the Roman government. They are terrified, which is why they're locking themselves away in rooms like this. They are in hiding. They're disappointed Jesus is dead. They're mourning, they're in grief. You would think if there was ever a time to band together, remember Thomas is one of the 12, Like he's been in it from the beginning. These are his brothers. I mean, they're so close. If there was ever a time to band together in community, it would be now in fear of your life, grieving over Jesus. And yet we don't see Thomas in community with the other disciples. I mean, it's just fascinating to me that Jesus appears to them and Thomas is nowhere to be found. Thomas had allowed his doubts to give way to isolation. He was wrestling with his grief and disappointment with who he thought Messiah was and he decided to pull away from those closest to him. Does that sound familiar? Do we not do that too? Like when we're wrestling with something in life, when we're really having a hard time, we tend to pull away from the people that we know we should be with because they're gonna speak truth into our lives. They're gonna say something that we don't wanna hear in that moment or whatever. We just wanna be alone. Thomas has pulled away. His doubt had given way to isolation. Jesus appeared to the other disciples, but not to Thomas because he wasn't with them. And you know what we do when we pull away from our community. Isolation eventually leads to loneliness and loneliness eventually leads to a desire to be with people. But we don't want to be with those people because we've pulled away from them. And so we begin to form new communities with people on the foundation of the same shared experience. Oh, you're disappointed about that too? Yeah, me, me too, let's, let's get together. Oh, you don't like that person because they hurt your feelings? I don't either, let's get together. And so all of a sudden these new communities begin to form on terrible foundations of disappointment and pain and we get together and we create Facebook groups and we gossip and we slander and we do all this stuff because they've had a shared experience too. All the while leading us further away from truth and healing in God. Thomas pulled away, but the disciples sought him out or somehow communicated to him that Jesus has risen again, and so he's with them. Maybe he figured, well, if I hang out with you guys, maybe he'll come back, and Jesus indeed does, and Jesus meets Thomas there, not in his isolation, but in the midst of his community, because we need community to deal with our doubts. Number of years ago, I was on a, a backpacking team. We flew out to Wyoming, and it was a backcountry excursion. No trails at all, no markings at all. We had a topography map and a compass and a bunch of gear. And we were in the Wind River Range of the Rocky Mountains in Wyoming. And all of us, I mean, had elevation sickness. You know, we're used to East Coast mountains, low elevation, high humidity. We get over there, the air is thin, we're all nauseous and headaches and all this stuff. And we are plowing our way through snow, which is at places waist deep or knee deep in most. And, and so the, the person in the front of the line, you know, you're hiking about 10 strong. The person in the front of the line is taking the brunt of the exertion. Like they're doing the most work because the snow is untouched in front of them. And so they're the one, even with snowshoes on, you're sinking in pretty deep. They're the one who has to pick up their legs every step and do these high steps every step weight on your back, cold air in your lungs, your face is stinging, the wind is blowing, your head's pounding, you can't breathe, and they're plowing forward. It's exhausting. Your hips are on fire, your legs are tight. It's exhausting. You know where the sweet spot is, though, right? Sweet spot's in the very back of the line. Because this person has got like nine people in front of them. I mean, dude, they're just kind of like strolling with the swag in the snow, you know what I mean? Like, I ain't gotta pack down nothing, man, because the whole line has done it for me. And is that not a picture of how God's people should operate with one another when we are weak and in moments of doubt? When our faith is frail, should we not be able to say, oh, you're struggling? Hey man, get to the back. Let me plow the hard stuff for you. I'll pave the way. I'll pack it down as good as I can. I'll take the load of this hard question because right now you're struggling. Because eventually we know that something will happen in my life to create doubts. Something will happen that will rattle my worldview, and I need people, I need my community to come up and say, oh, hey, get to the back, man. Let us pave the way for a while. Let us carry the weight, follow our tracks. We got this. Is that not how God's people should operate? Do we operate that way? If we do, it's rare, because we don't allow room to express doubts. We tend to shame those who have doubts because they have a lesser faith. And because we're too afraid to admit them, we pretend like we've got it all together all the while we are sinking in the snow. We need each other. Thomas needed his community and it was in that community that Jesus met him. How do we deal with our doubts? Honestly, patiently, and in community. That's how we deal with them. Now, how does Jesus deal with our doubts? Let's look. Jesus comes in, he says, peace. He knows what Thomas has said because he says immediately to Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand here. Hold it out and put it here. He knows what Thomas has said. And so he therefore knows that Thomas is doubting. And how does he greet Thomas? In condemnation? No. Peace. Peace be to you. And he speaks to Thomas and he invites him to investigate. Thomas, if what you need is to see my scars and touch them, then here they are. He meets Thomas. And then he calls Thomas out of his doubts. How does Jesus deal with our doubts? He meets us in the midst of them and he calls us into deeper faith. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. He meets us in the midst of our doubts. He met Thomas. He gave Thomas the greeting of peace. He allowed Thomas to investigate what he needed to or gave him the invitation to at least. And then he actually challenged him away from those doubts or through those doubts. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus meets us in our doubts and calls us out of our doubts. It wasn't one or the other, which is typically what we tend to do, right? Like someone's doubting and we may overemphasize like the sympathy. So we're like, oh, you're doubting? Wow, oh, that's a good question. Me too, I've wondered that. I don't have an answer for you, but I've wondered that too. Why don't you just stay in the doubts, man? You'll maybe eventually figure it out. And so we overemphasize sympathy or we overemphasize truth. Oh, you're doubting? Don't, just don't. Like believe, you should have faith, don't doubt. We emphasize truth or we emphasize grace. Rarely do we emphasize both. Jesus emphasizes both. He's graciously truthful and truly gracious at all times. He meets us in our doubts and calls us into deeper faith through our doubts. You can have doubts and have faith simultaneously. Doubts can be uh, one of two things. They, They can strengthen our faith in fact, the people, some people I know with the strongest faith imaginable, they have faith that have been tempered by the flames of doubt. It's because of the doubts and because they've wrestled with the doubts and asked the hard questions that they have a stronger faith. Doubts can be an on-ramp to an interstate of greater faith than we could ever imagine. They can accelerate our faith. They can lead us to deeper faith if we allow them to. Or doubts can be service roads to dead ends. Just kind of these like spiritual cul-de-sacs where we, we don't let them lead us anywhere. We just kind of swirl in the midst of them. This is what happens when we internalize them and we're not honest about them and we don't share them and we don't seek community and we don't seek Jesus. They become our dead ends. But when we approach them honestly and patiently and in community and we allow Jesus to meet us, doubts can lead us to deeper levels of faith. How does Thomas respond my lord and my god no one in the gospels has called jesus god before the greatest doubter in an instant becomes the greatest worshipper in the gospels he gives jesus the highest acclaim possible jesus says you believe me because you believe in me because you've seen how blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed who is jesus talking about there us future generations of believers who never got this experience to touch Jesus or investigate the wounds, he's talking about us. This is not a rebuke to Thomas. Like truthfully, the other disciples believed because they saw, Mary believed because she saw. He, he's not saying to Thomas, oh, you believed because you saw me. No, 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 he's saying you believe because you've seen me. There are future generations of believers coming who will never get this opportunity and they will believe how blessed are they the faith of the people in this room or the faith of the people listening who have never seen Jesus and still believe. Jesus is speaking to us and saying, we are so blessed. How does John end this chapter? Two verses. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Little throwback to John three sixteen. Anyone who believes in me, Shall never perish. You may have life in his name by believing. See, John knows that we're gonna wrestle with doubts. He knows that we're gonna have questions. It's why he wrote this book. He states it the purpose of writing about these things, the post resurrection miracles, and the whole book as a, in general, is so that you would read them and understand that through the works of God and the words of God, that Jesus truly is the one, the chosen one, the Messiah. He is trustworthy. He is worthy to follow. He is the one we should put our hope in, even in the midst of doubts. We can believe in Jesus and find life in him. Do you have doubts? It's okay. Jesus can handle your doubts. The important thing is that you don't allow your doubts to dead end your faith, but you allow them to lead you to deeper forms of truth by wrestling with them. Well, how do we do that? Honestly, patiently, and in community. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word and for your grace and truth in the ways that you approach Thomas and us. Jesus, we have questions. There's things we just don't know what to do with. We can't make sense of some things in this life We can't reconcile it. We can't connect the dots. And so we get frustrated or discouraged. Sometimes we're too afraid to even say those things out loud. But it's when we keep them quiet that we can never grow in them. And so I pray that you would give a blessing and an anointing to this room and this church and God's people to be able to see that you can handle our doubts with grace and truth, and therefore so should we. We don't have to silence doubts, but we can engage with them. We can comfort those who are doubting and in the waiting period of silence, be a community to them. We can have mercy with the doubters because at times we will be the doubters. Thank you for the gospel of John and displaying your works and your word in ways that compel us to believe that you are the one who is trustworthy even in the midst of our questions. We love you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name.